Morning. Good to see you guys all out today. I'm excited to dive into a new series. I got sort of a lot to cover, so I'm going to jump right in if that's okay. Uh, we're we're going to talk for the next few weeks about doubts, uh, specifically doubts that you uh, may have about your faith. When I was growing up, I was raised in a preacher's home, and my mom was my Sunday school teacher, and I was taught all the all the stuff, you know, all the Bible stories and all the things, and and uh, there were moments when I b- would question some things as I got older, as a as a young teenager, and moved through. And but I I never felt like it was safe to share those things. Like, did did this man really get swallowed by a giant fish and live in there for three days? I I kind of doubt it, but I I don't think it's okay to say that. In fact, I even felt guilty for feeling that way. Like shame on me for doubting this story that's in the Bible. And so as I grew older, I just, I, I started to just kind of stuff these things down deep and I never really felt like it was okay to talk about them. And, and I, I, it, it weakened my faith in a lot of ways. So that by the time I was upper high school, junior, senior, my, my faith was, uh, was pretty weak. I, I, I didn't really follow Jesus. I wasn't really um, passionate about uh, anything having to do with God or Christianity. And, and I think it's, it's partly because there were some unresolved questions down in my heart that I, I wasn't really sure that this whole thing, this Christianity thing that my parents taught me was, was really true because um, I, there are a lot of things I grew up believing that I found out later weren't true. For, for example, I grew up in the South. I was born in Atlanta, lived for a while in Tennessee, Alabama, Mississippi, North Carolina. And I thought everyone in America was an Atlanta Braves fan. It just, that's the only thing that made sense to me because everywhere I went, everyone was an Atlanta Braves fan due to the magic of cable television and TBS. Everyone in the South watched the Braves and everybody was a Braves fan. And then I went to, listen, this is how naive I was. I was 18 years old, okay? Went to college and, and met people like Andy Gable who was not a Braves fan. And I thought, these heathens, they haven't heard the gospel. I went, the, I... I need to be a missionary now uh, to these people and, and let them know the truth of the word that the Atlanta Braves are really the only team worth cheering for. I'm still on that mission today. If you uh, want to talk about it later, I'll be glad to convince you uh, to cheer for the Braves. By the way, this is how we know spring is coming. Baseball has started. Spring training baseball has started. Amen. And uh, it's, it's on the way. So three people in here are excited. We'll, we'll go out and have lunch and talk about it later. But I, I, had that, I had that moment where I had to wrestle with the world doesn't look the way I, I thought it did. There, there's this little thing about the world that I thought was true that now I'm, I'm, I'm not sure is actually true. And you, you've been through that too. When, when we're kids, we all think, you know, for the most part, we think our parents are, are, are geniuses and they're our heroes. And my dad could do things that I couldn't do and he knew things I didn't know. And he, I was always amazed he could tie knots like just the most mind-blowing knots. And it, 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 there was a different knot for every situation. My dad knew him. He wasn't in the Navy. I don't know where he picked this up. but And he could identify trees by looking at the bark, you know. And we'd walk through the woods, and he'd say, oh, that's a, you know, shaggy bark hickory. And I'm like, okay, Dad, you're the best. You're, you know things. And my mom just is super smart, and she knew all these big words, and she was always teaching me big words like pulchritudinous and ubiquitous and stuff. And so I, I just thought she was the smartest person on the planet. And then I turned 15. And suddenly, my parents got 
dumb overnight. It was just, I don't know what happened. Something happened in their brains and they, they weren't able to function anymore. And they started saying the most ridiculous things like, you really need to go to bed at nine o'clock so you can get eight hours of sleep because you have to get up early. And eight hours, of, who needs eight hours of sleep? I mean, I can function on four, five, maybe. They started saying crazy things like, hey, we know that some of kids in your school, they're doing some of these crazy things, and, and, and so um, we're going to be watching you. I'm like, just because my friends do this stuff, it doesn't mean, that's ridiculous. Why would you think that? And, and my parents just, they were, for about four years of my life, they were, they were dumb. And then I, I turned 19, and I started, I started working to kind of put my way through college, and and, uh, and my parents started getting smarter again. It was amazing. It was a miracle. And by the time I got married and had, we had our first child, and suddenly my parents were geniuses again. And I, I came to trust them just like I had trusted them when I was seven, but it was a different kind of trust. I think it was a better kind of trust. Because when I was seven, I didn't have any reason to doubt them. I, I didn't see behind the curtain. I, I didn't know that they were actually human beings with real problems and real frustrations in life and that they made mistakes. I didn't know any of that. And so I trusted them very blindly. But once I came to know them as real human beings who are not perfect and they make mistakes and came through that, I wrestled through my doubt about my parents and got to this other side where I understood, yes, they're real people, and yes, they make mistakes, but man, they really love me. They, they really did have what my best interests at heart, and they're pretty smart and trustworthy. And I think it's better on the other side of doubt. And so I, I'm convinced that there are a lot of people in a lot of churches this morning that have some unresolved doubt in their hearts. They, they, they grew up believing certain things about their faith, and then they, they went off to college, and somebody smarter than them gave them this explanation and, and said, you know what, that's really not true. You can't trust the Bible, and, and it's, you know, it's not historically reliable, and, and this person, Jesus, we're not even sure he actually lived. And, and people started saying these things, and you started going, wait a minute. This, this person is really smart. Maybe, maybe, maybe I've been wrong. Maybe my parents were just kind of feeding me this story, and and you never talked about it. You just kind of stuffed it down deep. And, and maybe you're at a point where you, you just think, okay, so what's the big deal? Maybe it's not all true, but I mean, I can still go to church. I can be a Christian. I can try to live a better life. I can try to follow the words of Jesus. I mean, Jesus said some pretty good things. Love your neighbor. That's pretty good. If everybody did that, the world would be a better place, right? So no harm done. It, it may or may not be true but I'm not sure it matters. What if it does matter? What, what, if, what if doubt's a good thing when we wrestle with it? When we bring it out into the light and we examine our doubts and we take a good hard look at them, what if it can grow into a faith that is better than the faith we had before? Because we actually took some time to work through our doubts in the open. Doubts that we stuff down in a dark corner of our heart weaken our faith, and, and often they make people walk away from faith completely. But doubts that we bring out into the light, and we examine them, and we talk about them with people, you know, you, did you know it's not a sin to doubt? It's not, it's not a sin. If, you, if you've always felt guilty because you're, you've had some doubts and concerns about things that you've heard about Christianity or Jesus or the Bible, you know it's not a sin? You, you know it's actually safe to sit in a group of people and, and say, hey, I, I'm not actually sure that I can trust all the parts of the Bible. And you can work through that, and you can talk through that. And I think when you bring that out and you set it on the table and you look at it, it can grow into a faith that's better 
than what you had before. So my goal in this series is to drag some doubts out of the dark corners of our hearts, lay them on the table, and look at them in the light and see if we can't grow our faith into something that's better than it was before. So the first doubt we're going to wrestle with is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Did Jesus actually rise from the dead? I think it's pretty popular to believe, at least in private, that Jesus was a good teacher. He was just a good teacher. He said a lot of wise things. And we would probably all be better off if everybody was more like Jesus. But I'm not sure he actually rose from the dead. I'm not sure it even really matters when you get down to it. I mean, he was a good, he was a good teacher, and we, we should you know, try to be more like him. But if he didn't rise from the dead, then maybe... Maybe it's just not that important. Maybe I can get to heaven anyway. If I, if I be like Jesus, if I can be good enough, maybe I can get, get to heaven that way. And, and it doesn't really matter if that other stuff is true. The problem is that the way the New Testament presents Jesus, it's not possible for him to be a good teacher and also still dead. It's not possible. Because Jesus told his disciples that he was going to be crucified and come back to life. So if, if he didn't come back to life, then he's either crazy, delusional, or he just lied. He just made the whole thing up. So he can't actually be a good teacher and still be dead. If he's still dead, he's not a good teacher. We probably should just throw all of his teachings out the window because he lied about some stuff, and how can you, how can you trust him? He lied about some really important things. So it's not enough for him to be a good person. It's, it's not enough for him to have some good principles. Paul says this really clearly. We're going to dive into our main text for today. It's from 1 Corinthians. Paul wrote this letter to this church in Corinth. These were young Christians. This was a pretty, Christianity is still pretty new at this time. And some people had come into this church in Corinth and they were saying, hey, you know, uh, I, I know that you guys, one, one little thing that you believe, one little piece of your faith is the resurrection of Jesus. But you need to know Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead because resurrection from the dead is impossible. I mean, we're, we're educated people. We're the Greeks, you know. We, we know stuff. And we know that you can't rise, you can't come back from the dead. And so you just need to know that this little part of your faith is not true. Well, you guys can go on. You can go on being Christians. We don't mind. You, we just want you to know this little thing about resurrection is not true. So how does the Apostle Paul, who has based his life on the resurrection of Jesus. How does he respond to that? Let's, let's pick up in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance, first importance, most important thing, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Paul said, if you don't believe me, go to Jerusalem, track down some of these people. They're still walking around. They can tell you. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul says, I've seen him. I've spoken with him. I've talked to the risen living, breathing Jesus. Now, let's 
Follow up in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? He's directly addressing these people who are going around telling people no one rises from the dead. I mean, we know better than that, right? That's not how science works. So he says, if that's true, if Jesus hasn't been raised, verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. You're wasting your time. What are you doing? Why are you even here? If Jesus isn't alive, what you're doing is foolish. That's not Paul talking. That's just me saying, if Jesus isn't alive, then standing here singing songs to him is foolish. It's like singing songs to any dead person who said some smart things. Like, we came in here and started singing songs to Abraham Lincoln. That'd be kind of weird, wouldn't it? I mean, not normal. If Jesus is not alive, what we're doing doesn't make any sense. Let's continue. Verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Have you lost anybody that you love, Paul says? And, and your, your hope, your comfort, your peace is that there is eternal life for them. Paul says, if Jesus isn't alive, your hope is misplaced. And those that you've lost that you're hoping are living eternal life somewhere, it's all a lie. It's a sham if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Paul never met him. And you can throw out all of his letters from the Bible, 13 of them that he wrote that are made it into the New Testament. You can just throw those right out because he's a liar if Jesus isn't alive. All the disciples who were imprisoned and beaten and tortured and killed for saying that Jesus is alive, they were either all delusional or they were all liars and they died for something they knew was a lie. If Jesus isn't alive, our hope of connecting with God, it's false hope. It's not real. If Jesus isn't alive, there's no forgiveness of our sins and there's no eternal life for us or for those that we love. So the resurrection of Jesus is the heart of the gospel. It's the cornerstone of our faith. It's the reason that we're here. But it's still a little tough to swallow, right? If you grew up in church and people have been telling you all your life that Jesus rose from the dead, then that kind of is lodged in some place of your mind where you separate faith from reality. And you're like, okay, there's just some things about Christianity and faith that, that don't make sense in the real world, and we're just going to accept that. We don't need to actually try to make that make sense. Because in our experience, people do not come back from the dead, Right? Have you ever seen that happen? That's, that's not something that just happens. And so how do you know? How do, how, do you, how do you really know that this is true and that Jesus is alive? Many people want proof. I, I have some friends who, who are not believers in Jesus, and they just said, you can't prove to me that he rose from the dead. And I said, you can't prove to me that Abraham Lincoln gave the Gettysburg Address. Go ahead and try. Well, it says it right here in the history books. 
History books have never told a lie, have they? You can't, were you there? I mean, some of you are feeling your age today, but you, you're not old enough to have been there when he gave the Gettysburg Address. You, you can't prove to me you weren't there. All we have is this recording of history. Proof is sort of misguided. It's, it's an unrealistic thing to chase, but evidence is worth chasing. We believe that Abraham Lincoln gave the Gettysburg Address and that Alexander the Great had a horse named Bucephalus because there's enough evidence in history for reasonable belief. The same is true with Jesus. I believe there's enough evidence for reasonable belief. So I'm going to go through three pieces of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. This is just scratching the surface, but I think these are helpful. So jot these down, even if they're not for you, even if you're like, I don't need any convincing. You're preaching to the choir today. Fine, but you're going to run into somebody somewhere along the way who has some doubts about whether people come back from the dead. And we can, listen, we should be able to go, you know what, you're right. That does sound crazy. And yet I believe it's true because there's evidence. Evidence, piece of evidence number one is the empty tomb. The empty tomb. When Jesus was crucified and he died, he was buried very publicly. The Roman soldiers knew exactly where Jesus was buried. The Jewish leaders who got Jesus crucified to begin with knew exactly where he was buried. And so on that day, when the disciples start saying, he's alive, all the Roman soldiers or the Jewish leaders had to do was go to the tomb and produce a body. But they went to the tomb and there was no body. No body. So they said, well, the disciples must have stolen the body because the body is not here. The tomb is empty. If, if there's no body in the tomb, it has to be somewhere, right? This, is, this, this could happen in my home. It hasn't happened yet because my family uh, knows me too well. But if, if I had a pint of Haagen-Dazs in the freezer, because I bought it and I put it there, and my family knows that the Haagen-Dazs is mine, okay? We just, listen, you can look at me and tell I enjoy a good pint of ice cream. So if it's in the freezer, if I go to the freezer and it's not there, then I know that someone took it. If I go to my family and they say, oh, we didn't, we didn't touch your ice cream. Yeah, you did, because it's not where I left it. And so I go, I'm checking the trash can. I'm looking for the, you know, all the evidence. Looking in the, we've got this freezer out in the garage. And I go check the freezer out in the garage because someone is messing with me and you don't mess with dad's Hagen does. Like we just don't do that. But I, no one can dispute that it's not where it should be. This was true about the tomb. No one could dispute that the body of Jesus wasn't where it should be. And listen, the Romans and the Jewish leaders both thought this Christianity thing was a bad thing. And they wanted to shut it down. In fact, the Apostle Paul, who we just read from, he had devoted his life, the early part of his life, to wiping out Christianity. And Christianity was based on this belief that Jesus rose from the dead. So all anyone ever had to do to make Christianity go away once and for all was produce a body. And no one could ever do it. So is that proof? It's evidence. Second piece of evidence is the eyewitnesses. The eyewitnesses. Paul says, when Jesus rose, he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then, and then to the disciples, and then he appeared to 500 people at one time. 500 people at one time. Now, I can see you saying that, that one person that claims they saw somebody rise from the dead, you're like, well, I mean, you know, who do they have to back them up? You're just taking their word for it. But if 500 people say, we were all together in this space, we all saw Jesus, he talked to us, we interacted with him, 500 people, that's, that's pretty strong witness. 
And Paul said to the Corinthian church, he said, these people are still alive and walking around, a lot of them. If you don't believe me, just go to Jerusalem and, and track them down and ask them, and they'll tell you, I was there, I saw them. The eyewitnesses is a huge piece of evidence. Imagine a, a court proceeding where a crime had taken place, and the prosecutor begins to call witnesses. And one after another after another, I'll say they saw the exact same thing. 500 people take the stand. Would it take 500, or at some point the judge has got to go, okay, okay, we get it. We get it. This happened. Everyone's saying the same thing. We're 100 people in. Please don't bring 400 more people up here. The eyewitness account. Is it proof? Man, it's, it's good evidence. Evidence number three, the spread of Christianity. Christianity was established and grew based on the teaching of the apostles, and their teaching was centered on the truth that Jesus is alive. When Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, just a couple of months after Jesus rose from the dead, just a couple of months later, he said, by the way, this Jesus that you crucified is alive. And no one could prove him wrong. No one argued with him. 3,000 people at least believed that Jesus was alive. Two months later, Peter and John were arrested for preaching this news. They brought into the Jewish leaders, they were beaten within an inch of their lives. And then the leaders said, all right, guys, hopefully you've learned your lesson. You've got to stop telling people that Jesus is alive. And Peter says, I can't, I can't. I, I, I mean, you, you can beat me all you want. You can kill me. You can cut my tongue out. But it doesn't change the truth that Jesus is alive. And Peter said, I'm not, I'm not going to stop saying it. I can't stop saying it. Millions and millions of people over thousands of years are convinced that they've had interaction, encounters, experiences with the risen Jesus. Thousands of years, millions of people. Listen, there is more evidence that points to a living Jesus than a dead one. It's not even close. The truth is, this man, who was the Son of God, came to this earth and lived 30-some-odd years he went to a cross and died a very public death. He was buried publicly in a tomb. And then he came back to life on Sunday morning. And he's alive and well, and he's in this room, and he's with us now, and he'll be with you when you leave. Jesus is alive. Amen. If it's true... If it's really true that Jesus is alive, that means our sin has been dealt with, and we have freedom from sin, and we have hope of eternal life. If he's alive and well right now in this moment, it changes everything. Maybe you're on the fence. You've been on the fence sort of your whole life about this Christianity thing, and you thought, okay, I'll go to church sometimes, and, and, and I'll try to be a better person, but, but there's just no reason to be like a, a Jesus person. You know, those Jesus people, they're kind of different. They're weird. I'm not sure I want to be one of those. And you've been on the fence your whole life. And maybe what's been holding you back is that you're not convinced he's real. You're not convinced he's alive and well. But if he is, it should change everything for you. Here's, here's what happened when the disciples first found this out. In John chapter 20, the disciples are, uh, Jesus has been crucified and they're terrified that they're going to be next, that the Romans are going to come after them and the Jewish leaders are going to come after them and they're going to get in trouble and be crucified as well. 
So they're hiding out in this place. In John chapter 20, verse 19, it says, on the evening of that day, that is resurrection day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them, just showed up and said to them, peace be with you. When he said this to them, he showed them his hands, the nail marks in his hands and his side where he'd been pierced with a sword. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Greatest understatement in all of human history? Yeah, probably. They were glad. They were like, oh, Jesus, so nice of you to stop by. It's really cool. No, they lost their minds. They freaked out. They, this was the best moment of their lives. Their best friend, their leader, who they had watched die on a Roman cross, was standing right in front of them alive and well. They were glad. <laughs> so Jesus doesn't just show up to comfort them. He doesn't just show up to say, okay, look, everything's going to be okay. You guys just, you know, stay huddled up in this room and they'll never find us. I'm here with you now and we're going to, I'm going to protect you. That's not why he showed up. Look at the next verse. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Because I'm alive, you can't stay here hiding out in this room. I know it's a scary world out there. I know that if you go out with this message that Jesus is alive, people are going to laugh at you. People are going to point at you. People are going to want to avoid you. People are going to call you a liar. People are going to think you're crazy. Some people might even want to hurt you or your family. But that doesn't change the fact that it's true and people need to know it. Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Because I'm alive, you have to go and tell somebody. Belief in the resurrection produces action. We're supposed to do something. We're supposed to do something. If it's really true that he's alive, aren't there people that you know that need to know this? I want you to imagine for a minute, this is not going to be fun, by the way. Just hang with me, though. Imagine for a minute that your best friend dies. Who's, who's, who's your best friend, your favorite person? Maybe they're sitting right next to you. Maybe it's somebody that's not here. And they, and they die, and you, you, you cry your eyes out, you mourn, you go to a funeral, and you go home just to process and kind of sit in your grief, and your doorbell rings, and you open the door, there's your friend standing there, big smile on their face, and saying, hey, guess what? I'm back. And you lose your mind. You're not just glad that they stopped by. You lose your mind. You freak out. You're so excited. You bring, come in, sit down. We're going to have some coffee. We're going to talk, and you talk for hours, and then they stand up and say, okay, I got to go. I'll be back, but I'm going to leave for now. And they, and they walk out the door. What's the next thing you do? Facebook. <laughs> like, you guys, you're not going to believe. World, I have an announcement. You're not going to believe this. My friend was dead, and now they're alive. And you're, you're, you're social media in it. You're making phone calls. You're shooting out texts. You're probably running down the street, knocking on doors like a crazy person going, people, you're not going to believe this. I went to the funeral. I saw the body, and now they're alive. But that person, your best friend, as wonderful as they are, they didn't die for your sins. They didn't give their lives to give you hope. But Jesus did. And he's alive. He said, because I'm alive, you got to tell somebody. This is where a lot of us say, okay, I, I get it. Like, I want to do that. I just don't know how. We're going to pause for a minute for a little commercial about a 5-2 training. I know. 
that it's difficult just to run out there with this message and not really know how to communicate it, not really know how to do it in a way that's going to invite people to Jesus and not push them away. And how do we do this? Our 5-2 training that we, we're running today, if you didn't sign up, you can still stay. We'll, I'll just, I just won't eat. Do you only eat my pizza or whatever? And because the goal is to teach you how to live in such a way that people can see in your words and actions that you serve a living Savior. That's the goal. That's why we're doing 5-2 training. That's a big part of it. And so if you can come to that, if you're sitting here going, I, I, I would love to be able just to go and tell people that Jesus is alive. I don't even know where to start. Come to the training today, and we'll get you started. We'll give you some training that can help you figure out how, how to use what God has given you, what God has given you, your five and two, to live your life in such a way that people can tell from your words and actions that you're serving a living Jesus a living Jesus. Because if he's not alive, if, if we're just here because he said some good things that are worth following, love your neighbor as yourself and do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Those are good things to live by. Let's, let's rally around these smart words of Jesus. That's not what we're here for. If that's what we're here for, you could change the name on the door every week, and you could say, this week it's going to be Cicero Gandhi Church. And we would come, and we would talk about some of the good things that Gandhi said and did, and we'd study him and worship him for a little while. And the next week we'd come, and it would be Cicero Martin Luther King Jr. Church. And you could come, and we'd, we'd go over some smart things that he said and talk, talk about his words and worship him for a while. But those guys are dead. Jesus is the only one who died for your sins and rose from the dead and is alive and well today. We're not just rallying around his smart words. We're connecting with a living, breathing person who loves you and wants a relationship with you and wants to connect you with God and, and wants to say, because I'm alive and it changes everything, now go and tell somebody. So come to 5-2 training if you're not sure how to do that and we'll, we'll get you started. As we wrap up, I want you to pray, and, and, and you got kind of two, two options here. I mean, you got lots of options. You can ignore me completely. I don't care. But here are two options I'm going to present. You, you, you may have a doubt that you buried down deep a long time ago about whether Jesus really is alive. And you thought, I don't know. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't. At some point, it just became a non-issue, and you thought, I'll just, I can still go to church. I can be a better person. It doesn't really matter. And you never talked about it because of guilt or fear or whatever. I want, you to, I want you to bring that out on the table today. I want you to ask God to give you the courage to talk to somebody about it. I, I, don't, I, I don't believe I'm not naive enough to think that this one message solved all of your doubts about the resurrection of Jesus. But I, I, if it can get it out on the table so you can examine it and talk about it in the light of day, then maybe, maybe today is the day your faith begins to grow into something that's better than what you ever had before. So, so, Prayer option number one, God, give me the courage to drag this doubt out into the light and to talk to somebody about it and really examine it so I can figure out where I'm going next. Prayer option number two, you, you may know somebody that's not a follower of Jesus. And they may have given you all kinds of reasons why they're not a follower of Jesus. Maybe they said, you know, evangelicals in the political world just turn my stomach. And maybe they said, you know, the way that Christians have treated uh, homosexuals over the years, I just can't, I don't want to be around those people. And they've got some good arguments there, okay? Maybe they've said, there's just some stuff in the Bible I can't swallow. Did God really create the earth in six days? Did this guy really get swallowed by a fish and live in him for three days? Like, I'm just, I'm out on that stuff. And you thought, well, I don't know how to convince them. I don't know how to convince them that, that not everybody is like the, 
you know, the evangelicals you hear on the news and not everybody and who follows Jesus hates gays. I mean, that's, that's not who we are. And, and you just don't know how to convince them. But what if this is the starting point? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for your sins, and he rose from the dead, and he's alive and well today. What if you could start there? What if you don't have to convince them of all the other stuff? Well, you can just start with the person of Jesus. Who is that person in your life that you've been looking for a way in? You've been looking for a pathway to get them to move a little closer to Jesus. What if you can start here with the resurrection? Because it really is the cornerstone of our faith. So you're either praying that God would give you courage to drag your doubt out into the light and talk to somebody about it, or you're praying for your friend, your family member, your neighbor, your coworker, who needs to take a step to Jesus, and maybe they need to start by considering the possibility that this person we worship is alive and well today. So those two options clear. Third option, go back to sleep and ignore me. It's fine. I won't know the difference, but God will, okay? So um, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity this morning to be challenged in our faith. God, I thank you that you're not afraid of our doubts. It, it, it doesn't turn your stomach. It doesn't make you push away from us. But you invite us to wrestle with them because you know that the faith that comes on the other side of doubt is better. It's stronger. It's deeper. I pray that we would get these doubts out into the light. We begin to wrestle with them and examine them. Father, and I pray that there are people who will take a step forward towards Jesus today by going through this process. God, I pray for people who are not in this room, people who are not followers of Jesus at all, and, and they, they've got a lot of reasons why. I pray that you would use the people sitting right here in this room to live their lives in such a way that it becomes evident that Jesus is alive and well. Would you do that through us, God? And we can't wait to celebrate what you do among us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.